Well, it's good to be with you again this morning. So far in our exposition of John 14, we have looked at three of the promises that Jesus gave to his troubled disciples in the upper room during the Last Supper or shortly after the Last Supper. We've looked at the promise of his spiritual presence after he returns to the Father in verse 1. We've looked at the promise of a prepared place for the disciples in his Father's house, verses 2 through 4. We've looked at the promise of the right path to the Father's house, which is obviously in heaven. And we looked at that last Sunday in verses 5 through 11. Now, because of the next verse, what Jesus says, I think it's, it's pretty easy to estimate that the disciples at this point were, we already know they were heartbroken at the you know, losing Jesus. We know that they were anxious over various things. But I think because of the nature of verse 12, the one thing in particular that they were anxious about at this particular moment was the idea of not only losing Jesus, but losing the supernatural power he had given them uh, to perform signs and wonders that authenticate the gospel that they preached. In other words, they felt that, well, if you leave, then the power is going to go, and we may as well go back to our old jobs because it's all over with. The ministry's over and, and we're done for. So I'm pretty sure this is what they were contemplating. And maybe you're not familiar with the moment during Jesus' ministry where he actually bestowed supernatural power on these guys. Over in Luke 9, chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, it says, Jesus called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. So that's kind of the moment where they are empowered for ministry. And, and I'm fairly certain, as I said, the disciples here are wondering, does the power go with you? Does the ministry end as you exit? What does this mean for us? And Jesus, being omniscient and God, he, he knows their thoughts, and he responds in a most gracious and kind way to quell their anxiety and bring comfort to their troubled minds and hearts, he issues the fourth promise in the very next verse, verse 12. And it is what I call the promise of forward progress. Take your Bibles and turn to John 14. Verse 12 is where we will be. We're not going any further than verse 12. John 14, verse 12, I'll read it, and then we'll begin to break it down. And it is... Uh, has vastly more content in it than I, than I thought at first before studying it, but it is a, it's a pretty, pretty deep and profound verse. It reads, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And he says this, And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. That's our verse um, I have divided it into three parts, or broken it into three parts. We're going to look at the preface, the promise, and the plan. That's a good way to frame this verse. I want to begin with that first P, the preface. And we see that in 12a. This is how he begins. Truly, truly, I say to you. 
Jesus prefaces this promise with his classic truly, truly statement, which what? Signifies that the following words are of higher importance. Now, I tend to think that everything Jesus said was highly important. And I don't think we ever want to think that there are things that he said that were trivial and not highly important. But according to Jesus, there were some things that he said that were of a higher level of importance. In John 14, Jesus issued, I would say, a minimum of seven promises. Now, when we first started in John 14, I I think I told you I found five. Well, now I've got seven. As we keep mining and digging into the Word, I see seven, and there may be more uh, as we continue to move on. But in this chapter, he issued a minimum of seven promises. And yet, this is the only promise in the sequence that is preceded by truly, truly. In other words, when you look at the promises that are there, and you've got to dig around and you'll find them, this is the only one that begins with truly, truly. And I find that to be very, very interesting. Jesus clearly desired at this juncture to stress the importance and even higher importance of this particular promise. Why? I don't know for sure. I suspect it's because it pertains to the ministry of the apostles and to the mission of the church. In other words, the the nature of this promise has to do with what they will do after Jesus is gone and what every other Christian forever will do after Jesus is gone while he's sitting on his throne. So I think that that's why this thing is elevated above some of the other promises. And the other promises are really amazing, an inheritance in heaven in these things. But this one, this one, he puts extra um, value on, if you want to call it that. So he prefaces this promise. Before he even gets into it, he gives it his, his, his common, truly, truly. Whenever he wants to emphasize something really, really serious, he does that. And he does it here right before he illustrates the promise, which is just phenomenal. Now we can move to the second P, and this is where we'll spend most of the sermon. This is the promise. It's in 12b. He says, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do. That is the promise of forward progress right there. Now, some folks take this verse at face value and teach that every believer, regardless, every believer has the supernatural power and ability to perform the same works Jesus performed, to perform miracles, and to even do things that Jesus never did while he was on earth. So the prevailing interpretation of this verse among many in the church is precisely what I just described to you. This is carte blanche to every believer. You've got the supernatural power, and you can all perform miracles, and and you can even do things that Jesus never did. You can go beyond Jesus, like you can move planets. Jesus actually did move planets. He put them all in orbit, created them, and put them in orbit. But that is a very common interpretation of this verse. Now, I just have to share a little testimony with you. I've been a believer for going on 20 years, and I always add a few years to it to maybe try to make myself look better. Uh, But it actually makes me look worse because I'm not more mature now than I was five years ago. Uh, But in any case, I'm pressing in on about 20 years as as a follower of Christ now, thanks be to God. 
and I have yet to perform a single miracle. Now, this is not to say that I haven't tried. There have been a few times when I'm driving down the road, and I see a dog dead on the side of the road, and I pray that God would raise it right there. I just hate seeing dead animals scattered all over the road. And then I'll be watching in my mirror. Okay, it's going to happen. It's not happening. Maybe I ought to pull over and really pray. never happens. Now, that would be a, a, a trivial, silly way of, of trying to perform a miracle, but I've actually done, I've made more serious attempts, like being at the bedside of a dying man. And seeing this man dying and, and seeing his family around him crushed and, and weeping and hurting, I, I thought, well, maybe if I just lay hands on him and pray real seriously that God will you know, work some power through me, and all of a sudden he'll, he'll come out of that coma and he'll start breathing on his own you know, and all that. And I, and I wasn't joking around at all. I was serious, like, Lord, man, if it's your will, please, you can heal this man. You, you've done it before. Work through me. Ten minutes later or so, didn't work. I've tried. Have any of you ever tried? Come on, be honest. Stressful day at work. Lord, make the clock go faster. <laughs> and it, then it starts going backwards. Okay, never mind. Okay. Last night, I was telling Rachel, you know, every, whenever I go to a wedding, I always count down the hours and send them to her. I send them this, these random numbers, like six. And she's like, okay, that means he has six hours left. And then I'm like, I'm praying that it goes faster. And it never does. It seems to slow down when I pray for that. It's like, all right, stop praying for that. Pray that it takes longer. Maybe God works in the reverse order, you know? We've all tried. We've all attempted this. And, you know, if, if this text means what people say it means, if Jesus said that I... Can I have the power and ability to perform the same works, deeds that he did, miracles? If he said that, and it's a promise as they say, then why can't I do it? Why couldn't I save that dying man at the hospital? Now, if these folks are correct about their interpretation of verse 12, why aren't you guys out there raising the dead? Healing cancer patients, wouldn't you heal the first cancer patient you have an opportunity to heal? Especially if it was somebody in your own family? Be the first thing you do. Why aren't you out there healing cancer patients and casting out demons and raising the dead and, and curing addiction? Wouldn't that be wonderful if you could just lay your hands on somebody and just pray and God works a miracle through you and that person no longer is hooked on oxycodone? Man, that would be just spectacular. The first thing I'd do is heal myself of some of my own stupid little trivial addictions and my hobbies and things. No more guns. <laughs> I don't want guns anymore. It'd be wonderful. Why, aren't, why doesn't it work for me? If they say this is true of all of us, why doesn't it work for me? Why doesn't it work for you? Well, the question that is before us is, is this actually what Jesus promised here? Is their interpretation of this verse correct? No, not even close. Not even close. I want you to firstly focus on the word whoever. I don't like this word. 
I don't. I, I don't like the word. I don't like this English word here when it's used in Scripture. I don't understand why the ESV and NIV translators use it. They use it periodically. They use it here. I can't stand it. It's not a good word. It's not a good English word in reference to the original language. It's too generic. It's too impersonal. It's potentially misleading. In context, Jesus was issuing promises and this is not to say that these promises, some of them aren't unilateral and for the rest of all the Christians, but for the most part, he's issuing these particular promises to a group, a particular group of heartbroken men during an intimate supper. That's the context. But the word whoever makes it sound like he was referring to anyone and everyone who believes. Does it not? Well, whoever believes will do what I did and even greater things. That's an English rendering. That's not what he's intending in the Greek. Now, I think the NASB, the NASB, employs a more personal, better rendering that I think fits better. It says, he who believes in me. It's much more specific than whoever. He who believes in me. That's closer to the mark. If he literally intends, he who believes in me, as the NASB translators say he does, we have to ask another question. Who was it that was sitting around the table with Jesus? Eleven he's. So who was Jesus referring to? Was he referring to all believers? Or was he referring to the disciples in the upper room, sitting around the table, and maybe a few more he's, like Matthias. Do you know who Matthias is? He's the disciple that replaced Judas, who went and killed himself. And Stephen, the deacon. And Philip, the evangelist. And Saul, who became Paul, the apostle Paul. Was Jesus referring to all believers in this particular verse, and more particular, the front end of it, or was he referring to a handful of he's, a select few, about 15 men total? He was referring to the second group, not all believers, about 15 men, and more specifically to the apostles, who are the disciples that are sitting at the table. They're called apostles, and they're called disciples. More particularly, once Jesus has gone and ascended, they're referred to as apostles. But while Jesus is with them, they're referred to as disciples. But it's the same group, plus the apostle Paul and Matthias later on. So we must investigate further to establish my claim here, what the Bible says about the apostles and their healing power or miraculous power. We look at Acts 2.43. It says, Awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through whoever believed. No, that's not at all what it says. Let me reread it for you. Awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. How about Acts 5.12? It says, many signs and wonders were regularly done, done among the people by the hands of the apostles. What did the apostle Paul say to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 12, 12? The signs of 
a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. He's referring to himself, by the way. He was an apostle. So this facet of this promise is targeted, during the supper table when it's issued, is targeted toward a select few, 15 men total, according to my research, but more particularly the apostles. Now, if you actually run through the book of Acts, if you study the book of Acts, and we did, that's how we opened the church, how we planted the church, but maybe you could reflect back, or maybe you want to take a perusal through it and just kind of scan it, but if you look at the book of Acts, if you examine it, you will discover that only five men from this group of 15 I mentioned actually performed any miracles. Only five. One third of the group of 15 actually went out and performed miracles. Which ones? Peter, John, Stephen, the first deacon, and Philip the evangelist, who was also the second deacon chosen, and Paul, who became an apostle. Don't you find that to be astounding that in the book of Acts, which literally is in many ways a book of supernatural acts, the supernatural acts of the apostles, by the way, isn't it incredible that from bookend to bookend, with all of the supernatural things that take place coming through men, not when God breaks prison doors down and does these things himself, but these acts that are performed by men, God through men, there's only five guys involved in them. And yet today you would get the sense with all that's going on around us that there's people performing healings and doing supernatural things all the time, everywhere, right over at the corner of Coffee and, and Briggsmore and everywhere else. And yet when we analyze the scripture, it's very, very narrow. Who are we going to believe? God's testimony or what people are saying? So the first thing we need to realize is that the scope of this part of the promise is very, very, very narrow. It does not apply to all believers. In other words, you do not have this power to perform miracles, and neither do I. And no one else has it. If Jesus had promised... That, and, and this is, the, again, the interpretation. If he had promised that all believers shall possess this apostolic power that he's referring to here, the book of Acts would be very different, and so would church history, and so would today, would it not? Miracles would be so common, people would stop calling them miracles. One of the things that makes a miracle a miracle is that they're obscure, they rarely ever happen, and there's no scientific or human explanation for as to how it came to pass. I was at a, on a church campus this, uh, on Friday uh, doing a DJ gig for a football game, and there's a little ball field there named Miracle Field, and I thought, well, that's a cute, catchy name for that, but you know what? There was money that went into building that field. There, were, there was labor that went into the building. In other words, there is a human explanation for how that place came into being, which makes it not a miracle. It's not a miracle. You can call it miracle field, but it's, there's no miracle involved in its incarnation, its creation. Miracles are, by definition, something that we cannot explain or figure out scientifically or mathematically or in any other way. The minute that we can describe human interaction with it, and that's how it actually came to fruition, it's not a miracle. 
But if Jesus literally said this, then look, you and everyone else will have this power. Oh, wow. Miracles would be so common. Every dog I've ever prayed for would rise up and run back out in the street and get hit again, then I'd have to pray for it again. That man that I laid hands on wouldn't have died. Of course, some of them throw in there as a kind of a little catch-all. Well, it's because you don't have enough faith to move God to action. That's why it didn't happen. So you're telling me that Benny Hinn who allegedly heals people all the time by swinging his jacket like a jack-you-know-what, he has more faith than I do? The guy doesn't even know the Bible! But he can heal. Because it's a faith thing. No, I'm not buying it. Why did Jesus promise to anoint the men around the table with supernatural power in the first place. First, as his apostles, it was necessary that they have the same power and ability as Jesus himself so they could back up the divine message they preached with displays of divine power. They had to be able to do what Jesus did in a limited fashion for the primary purpose of doing the exact same thing Jesus did. Jesus preached the gospel, he backed it with miracles. These guys were his representatives, the first line of representatives, true representatives to come after Jesus leaves. They had to be able to do the same thing as Jesus. They preached, performed a miracle, backing up what they were preaching. That's one particular reason why he promised them that they would be able to do what he does or did. Second, Scripture was not yet complete. So it was necessary that the apostles have the ability to provide divine proofs as they proclaimed the yet-to-be-recorded divine word, the New Testament. Once Scripture was complete, this particular gifting would cease. It would come to an end. And it did cease when the last surviving apostle, John, died around 98 A.D., he was the last apostle to die. The traditional, long-held Orthodox belief of the true church is that this power and ability to work miracles as described was confined to the apostles and ended with the apostolic age when it ended. That is the belief the church has held forever. And yet today it's held in contempt. But not by all. Back in verse 11, Jesus exhorted his disciples to remember his works, his miracles, because doing so would help strengthen their faith in his divine personhood and messiahship. You remember the confusion of, of Thomas and Philip. We looked at it last week. Here, Jesus tells them that those who believe in him, this particular group, the he's that are around this table, will perform works, miracles, he performed after he is physically gone. It was as if he had said to them, I'm physically leaving, but my supernatural power will remain with you, and you will continue to perform signs and wonders that authenticate your preaching. This is what he's promising them. In other words, no, the ministry is not going to end, and the power is not going to go away. 
What you saw me do, you will see happen even more exponentially. And this is another fold or another segment of it here. He, he not only promises that, look, you're going to have the power, it's going to remain with you, you're going to keep doing the miracles that authenticate your preaching, but he even takes it further. He promises that they will do even greater works. Well, what did he mean by this? Was he promising that the apostles would be able to perform greater miracles than himself? No. If this were true, the book of Acts would contain examples of the apostles not only walking on water, but emptying seas and moving mountains, right? Was Jesus promising that the apostles would perform a greater number of miracles than himself? I don't think so. You might be able to argue that, but I don't think that's what he was saying. I don't think he was saying you'll perform better miracles than me, and I don't think he was saying you'll perform more than me. I don't think that's what he meant either. The Gospels contain 37 recorded miracles of Jesus. Take all four Gospels together, and you've got 37. Now, that's not to say that's all he ever performed, but there are 37 recorded ones approximately in the Gospels. And we know that at the end of the Gospel of John, it says he performed many more, too many to list, chapter 21, 25. So right there, John says, look, I recorded seven of them for a particular purpose to show you that you need to believe because he's the Messiah, but trust me when I say this, he did a lot more. I just didn't write them down. So you've got 37 recorded miracles of Jesus in the Gospels. The book of Acts contains around 11 recorded miracles of the apostles plus Stephen and Philip the Evangelist, really those five men that I described earlier. So what's the score? 37 to 11. <laughs> the biblical record shows that Jesus performed nearly three and a half times more miracles than the apostles plus Stephen and Philip. It also shows that he performed greater miracles than the apostles. No apostle ever calmed a violent storm with a simple verbal command, fed 9,000 men with a few loaves and fish, or raised a man who had been dead and buried for days. A couple of those apostles did raise a few people from the dead, but not one who'd been buried and stinketh. Jesus did not promise the disciples sitting around this table and the others he was referring to, that they would perform greater miracles or a greater number, number of miracles than himself. That is not the right way to interpret this verse. If he did not promise this, what people say he promised, what did he promise? Well, according to my research, the words works, pierced twice, in verse 12b, do not bear the same meaning. In other words, the first appearance means one thing, and the second appearance means quite another. First time it is used, it refers to physical miracles, because it is tied to the end of verse 11. Look, you're having a hard time believing that I am the divine Messiah? Remember my works that I did. That'll help you. Those are works means miracles, and the first part here, or expression of it, it's tied right to the end of 11. The second time, however, it is used does not refer to physical miracles 
because Jesus clearly did not promise that the disciples would out-miracle himself. The biblical record totally refutes this notion. When Jesus said works the second time, he was not pointing to the end of verse 11. He was pointing elsewhere. I'm fairly certain he was pointing to what he said back in John chapter 6, verse 29, which says, The work of God is that you believe in him whom he has sent. So what we've got here in this text are two types of works. In the first half of verse 12b, it is the works of physical miracles. In the second half of verse 12b, it is the works of preaching the gospel and spiritual conversions. Two completely different things. And yet the second one is by far a miracle. The greater miracle of any miracle in my estimation. But absolutely not one performed by any human being. Performed by the Holy Spirit alone. The apostles did not perform more physical miracles or greater miracles than Jesus. We've established this. It's a biblical fact. They did, however, preach the gospel to more people than Jesus, and they witnessed far more spiritual conversions than him. Did they not? Yes. That's what Jesus is referring to. Jesus preached before multitudes, multitudes, huge multitudes, 20, 30, thousand people sometimes, multitudes of people, but there were very few conversions when he went out and preached. Have you ever thought that's very interesting? You have the, by far, the universe's greatest preacher preaching his own gospel, and yet so little fruit comes through it. That is incredible to me. But I will interject and say it was by divine design. But it's still no less remarkable. When Jesus returned to heaven, he ascended, there were probably less than a thousand actual Christians, believers, on earth. We know there were 120 in the upper room. We know that he appeared to about 500, it says in Scripture. I think that we can safely assume there were less than a thousand. The church then was comprised of less than a thousand people. It was smaller than Big Valley Grace. And, and some would say that, well, you know, if Jesus was such a great preacher and anointed and all this stuff, he was a tremendous failure as far as preaching goes. Thousand people, I got more than that at my church. Well, you probably got 999 tares and one actual believer. Touche. Boy, he's mean. Yeah, I can be. I hate it when men boast about how many people they have in their church. First thing, you go to Shepherd's Conference or anywhere else, the first thing other pastors, there's good pastors down there, but the first thing people ask you when you interact, when a pastor interacts with them, how many people you got in your church? Well, I wear a size 12. What are you trying to get to here? You're better than me. Okay, great. Everyone's better than me. I mean, this is the first thing people ask. Pastors ask each other, how many people you got in your church? Oh, I don't know, about 60. Loser. I didn't put them in there. In fact, I've been trying to drive them away. <laughs> they won't go. 
If, if we're going to talk about ministry success, Jesus preaching hardcore best gospel messages, Sermon on the Mount, the bombest stuff ever heard, and only a thousand people when he bounces. Ooh. Sorry, Jesus. Some of these pastors in America, they, they do a better job than you. This is what they think. Disgusting. The apostle. Now, so, so my point is, I'm establishing the fact of Jesus preaching very small numbers of conversions, right? It's a fact. The apostle Peter preached the gospel before a multitude in Jerusalem on Pentecost, and 3,000 men were saved and added to the church. A little later, Peter preaches the gospel again in Solomon's portico, and another 2,000 men were saved. Men, not including their wives or children, men were added to the church. You got, basically, Peter preaches, to, Jesus preaches for three years all over Israel. Preaches better than anyone ever. And yet, Peter, who's kind of like me, most of the time a buffoon, he preaches two sermons and five thousand men are converted and saved and baptized. Jesus never saw numbers like this while he was touring and preaching. Jesus preached the gospel primarily to Jews throughout the region of Israel. Some call it Palestine. That's a fictitious name. But the apostle Paul, what did he do? He took the gospel well beyond Israel's borders, deep into Gentile territory throughout the Roman Empire, and he witnessed many spiritual conversions, and he planted churches all over the place. By comparison, the apostles preached the gospel to far more people than Jesus did, and they witnessed far more spiritual conversions than him. But this was by design. This is not because they were more talented than Jesus. This was Jesus' plan. When Jesus said, and greater works than these he will do, he had, he had to be pointing to the apostles' future preaching ministry and to the multitudes of lost sinners that would be converted under their preaching. This is what he's referring to here. It was as if he had said to them, I'm physically leaving you, but you will continue to preach the gospel and you will see greater numbers of people come to faith, far more conversions than I did when I was out there preaching. Again, this was by design. We must understand that Jesus came to be the gospel. Our righteousness, our sin-bearer, our account-settler, and our resurrection. This is why he came. He came to preach and be the gospel, not spiritually convert masses and masses of people through his own personal preaching, although every person who's converted is his, and they come through his preaching, through these ministers. But he did not come to, to win every soul through his preaching, like preachers do today. He came to be the gospel, to live in such a way to earn our righteousness, die for our sins and these things. He did not come to win everyone he preached to. In fact, he preached in such a way it deterred people. 
those who were half-hearted and not committed, they just heard these difficult teachings of his, and they even said that. This is a difficult teaching. Who can accept this? Bam, a thousand alleged disciples of his leave. This happened in Capernaum. Jesus was preaching almost in a way to turn people around. He did not come to do what the apostles did after him. He came to be the gospel, to be our sacrifice. We must understand this. They are not better than Jesus, but their ministries were exponentially larger and their scope was much larger than his. So Jesus' promise of forward progress in verse 12b is twofold. I think this gets to the heart of it. A, the disciples would retain the supernatural power of Jesus so they could continue to perform signs and wonders that authenticate their preaching. And B, the disciples would continue to preach the gospel, but they would see greater numbers of people come to faith, far more conversions than Jesus did while he was out there preaching. Again, this is by design. A couple of questions arise. What makes this promise possible, and when would it become active? And this is the time that we move to the final P. Number three, the plan. Verse 12c. He's made a promise. You'll continue, and your ministry will be exponentially huge. It'll progress. You'll make progress. And here's why. Here's how, is what he's saying. 12c, because I am going to the Father. There it is. There it is. What makes this promise possible? It is Jesus' physical return to the Father that makes it possible. If He does not leave the earth and return to His Father's house, verse 2, the promise will not under any circumstances, come to pass. It is entirely contingent upon His physical return to heaven. Now this means that this promise is linked to a particular ministry that He performs from His throne. What particular ministry? Well, I think it's linked to his priestly, his high priestly ministry, because in the very next verse, he talks about prayer, which Christians also accept as carte blanche. Anything that we pray, if we hang Jesus' name on it, it'll happen. Cadillac Escalade in Jesus' name. Oh, Dodge Caravan, dang it. This is how Christians interpret the next verse. But the next verse about prayer is linked to this ministry verse. You think about it. It's specific to these guys and to this. Now, that's not to say that that prayer verse doesn't have some implications that are broader for us. It does, just as there's some broader implications for us here. But for the most part, the next verse about prayer is tied to this verse 
about the ministry. And let me tell you something right now. You're going to preach the gospel. These guys are going to perform signs and wonders. They're going to need to pray before they do that because they're going to need to call upon Jesus for power. Do you ever notice how some of the apostles, when they, I think specifically Peter, before he healed certain people, like a, a guy who was lame at the beautiful gate at the temple, he prays before he does it? Prayer is, it is crucial that we pray as we go out and do ministry. They want to perform signs, you need to pray and link up with Jesus to do that. You want to see conversions, you better pray for it. So I, I don't think that you can separate. I've broken it up because we're going to go through the next verse by itself because I think it warrants that kind of time and investment, but you cannot separate 12 from 13. That prayer is in reference to what's going on in verse 12. It's not just, hey, here's a great thing about prayer, by the way. It doesn't have anything to do with what we've been talking about, but here's, that's how some people treat it, which is shameful. No, 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 no. This promise, the truly, truly, the only truly, truly promise in here is so important because it's about the furtherance of the gospel through the apostles and the furtherance of the gospel through his entire church forever. That's what this promise has to do with. And then you've got prayer on the backside of it, which is essential because you're not going to get anywhere without prayer. So what is necessary for this promise to be affected, to even have any kind of legs to stand on? Jesus' exit. He has to leave and take his throne and sit back on his throne in order for it to come to pass and in order for him to affect it from his heavenly position. It's amazing that our ministry today is tethered to his throne work. So the next question is, when would this promise become active? Well, because he's going up back to heaven, he's ascending, we would assume that it happens during his ascension. No, it doesn't happen during his ascension. It happened shortly after his ascension, 10 days to be precise. So the promise becomes active 10 days after he returns to heaven and takes his rightful place next to the Father. What happened 10 days later after the ascension? The Father sent the Helper, the Holy Spirit. Verses 16 and 26 of John 14. When? 10 days after the ascension. On what day? It was during one of the greatest feasts of the Jews. The feast of what? Pentecost. Acts 2, 1 through 4. This is when the promise became activated. He has to go, he has to leave and physically leave and go up and take his place for it to work. And then he activates it 10 days later through the sending of the Holy Spirit, who comes upon the upper room and 120 believers. They envision these flaming tongues. They're filled with the Holy Spirit like never before. The world's never seen an anointing of the Spirit like this. They go out and they preach the gospel in languages they don't even know to people they don't even know. Peter preaches the gospel. 3,000 get saved. Boom, 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 boom. Church is born. Here we are nearly 2,000 years later. 
You know, on the day of Pentecost is the day the apostles actually received the power Jesus promised. I think that during the ministry of Jesus, they had like a temporary anointing of the Spirit like you see in the Old Testament with King David and others. So it wasn't until, and this is, this is why you don't see the apostles doing any ministry at all during this time. After Jesus leaves, in fact, you don't see them doing much ministry at all after the resurrection. You see them fishing and eating fish on a beach and these kinds of things. I think a couple of them went back to fishing. Wow, that was a, they didn't have the power. But on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came upon them, everything changed. In fact, you can just look at Peter's life. He was a club super wimp before he got the Holy Spirit, wasn't he? Denying Jesus, doing all these stupid things. Get behind me, Satan. You know, just craziness. But that's not the Peter that we know and understand post-Pentecost, is it? We see a mighty preacher of God's Word, a fearless preacher of God's Word, a bold man who was whipped and beaten, thrown into jail and brought before the Sanhedrin for preaching the gospel. They said, you're not going to preach the gospel anymore. Okay, what are you going to do now? We're going to go out and preach the gospel. You're supposed to say the opposite. What are you doing? Quite a different man after Pentecost. That's when the apostles actually received the power Jesus promised. And it was delivered by the helper, the Holy Spirit. And we don't want to think of it as if the Holy Spirit just touches somebody and gives them power. That's not at all how it works. The Holy Spirit, the helper, is the power. He is the divine power that they possessed. It is His inner presence that empowered the apostles. His presence and power is what caused them to become Jesus' what? Witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth, Acts 1.8. This is one more reason why it was advantageous for Jesus to physically leave. Right in John 16.7, he tells them, same evening, they're still heartbroken and mixed feelings and trying to deal with all this, and Jesus is unpacking these promises, and he's going to enter into this prayer time for them shortly that's just incredible. It's, to me, just a supernatural, incredible prayer. And they're flipping and tripping. And he tells them, look, it's to your advantage that I leave. If I don't go, you don't get the helper. You don't get these promises. I have to go. I have to go. If Jesus remained There would be no Holy Spirit, at least not the Pentecost and the Holy Spirit coming into believers. There would be no divine power. There would be no forward progress, because without the Holy Spirit, there is no forward progress. There would be no apostolic miracles. What do I mean by that? Miracles performed by the apostles. There would be no true gospel preaching. I say true gospel preaching because it is possible to preach without the Holy Spirit, but whatever you're preaching is rubbish. As we hear in so many churches today, this garbage self-help stuff that doesn't have the Spirit in it and it's not about 
the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Lord, and our sin and our need of Him. There would be none of that. There would be no conversions. If Jesus doesn't leave, nobody is getting converted. The church would have stopped at about a thousand people. Done, gone. They'd die off. Generations would not hear the gospel. If Jesus doesn't leave, there would be no church. It is to your advantage that I go. Because if he doesn't leave, everything that I've described vanishes. Gone. Gone. It must have been, I can imagine, it must have been very comforting for the disciples to learn that Jesus' physical exit would actually cause forward progress than dash the ministry of the gospel to pieces. Just put yourself in their shoes. You're sitting around the table. He says he's leaving. You start to entertain the broader implications. Well, he's our joy, our peace, our source of power. He's our everything. He's leaving. Everything is lost. Would you not think this? What would happen to you right now if Jesus left you and took his spirit from you? You would be lost. Thank God he can never do that. That would be to go against his very nature. Imagine yourself right now not having and enjoying and experiencing the spiritual presence of Jesus. I can't imagine my life without him. Walk with him for three years and he says he's leaving. Imagine that. Would you not be sad? Would you not be perplexed? Would you not be scared? Would you not be terrified? You have protected us as we've walked through the shadow of the valley of death. You can't go. Don't leave, please. But I think that this promise among the rest of them brought very, just so much comfort to know that, look, 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 look. Man, yeah, you're I'm preparing a place for you. You're going to have my spiritual presence. You know, I, I've, I've told you and showed you the way to get to the Father's house. Yes, 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 yes. But listen, the ministry is not going to end. You will have my power. It is going to come upon you. And you, for a season, will perform miracles and things that authenticate the word until the scripture is complete, until the New Testament is finished. And John, you're going to do it. You're going to finish it up for me while you're sitting out there languishing on Patmos. Sorry, I had to tell you that's the way you're going out, but it's going to be bad, but it's going to be good. It's going to be bad, but it's going to be good. Can't be both, Jesus. One or the other. Bad. Okay. It's going to be good. This just had to be very comforting. It's not going to end, guys. It's not even that he tells them that it's going to continue. He tells them that it's going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. It's forward progress, but it's exponential progress. And what a promise. What a promise. What a promise indeed. Closing. <clears throat> Does... Jesus' promise of forward progress apply only to this group, only to the apostles and Stephen and Philip the evangelist? Yes and no. 
the first fold of the promise, divine power to perform authenticating miracles, was for them alone, about 15 men. But Acts documents only five of them using it. And I'm not saying that because I think they had this power and they wasted it. Acts just documents specific things. This first fold of the promise ended with John and is now complete. This is not to say, however, that God no longer performs miracles. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. He can and does periodically. It's very rare. But the days of anointing certain people with this particular power are over and way behind us. You must understand this. The stuff you and I see on TV and in certain churches around this town and all over the place, guys and gals putting their hands on people and healing them, is fake. It's fake. It's a show. It's a circus. It's not real. It's staged. It's staged. Why? To get more people to come to those churches and pay more money. That's why it's done. At the end of the day, it means tithes and offerings and money and power and luxurious living for these fake healers. That's what it means. The second fold of Jesus' promise of forward progress belongs to the entire true church, every believer, past, present, and future. If it didn't, you and I would not be believers because no one would have come to America and planted churches and preached the gospel. We would be lost in outer darkness. And as believers, if you are a believer, if you're in Christ, we have received the same Holy Spirit the apostles received. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. We have received the same message the apostles received, the gospel. We have received the same commission to preach it to the nations. Matthew 28, 19, Mark 16, 15. Many, many faithful believers have seen the Holy Spirit bring Many, many fallen sinners to faith. Many conversions through their ministries. In other words, we can see the broader implications of Jesus' promise carried out throughout church history. We can see it actively working and people getting saved and what Jesus said, greater works of these things. We can see it as a reality. It is said that over the span of 40 years, Charles Spurgeon baptized 14,654 people. <laughs> and if you've ever read even one of his sermons, you know that those conversions and baptisms are legit because that brother stuck to the gospel. There's no fluff in his messages. Spurgeon undoubtedly witnessed the greater works Jesus spoke about. He saw that promise 
in his own congregation, through his own preaching ministry. Countless people getting saved and baptized. I mean, it's not countless, but 14,000 is incredible. And I think for us, it is equally comforting to know that the second fold of this promise is ours. If we will faithfully live out our commission and gossip and preach the gospel, it is likely that we too will see the Holy Spirit bring fallen sinners to faith. We will see conversions. Sometimes this doesn't happen. There's a story of an old missionary who went into India and preached the gospel for 20 years or so and never saw one person converted and he left and the minute he leaves others come in and carry on his ministry and people are getting saved in droves. It's just a phenomenon that God is in charge of. But for the most part if you carry out your duty you will likely be blessed by seeing someone converted and there is nothing like it. That is the most exhilarating thing that you could ever experience. Dropping in on a roller coaster, pretty exciting. Nothing compared to seeing someone saved by the Holy Spirit, regenerated. It's, it's indescribable. It's indescribable. The question for us is, because this promise is ours, are we squandering our part of it, that second fold? Are we letting it get drowned out by the, the noise or cares or busyness or troubles of daily life? I hope not. My prayer is that we would live it out to the best of our ability and the strength and power of the Holy Spirit, regardless of what is going on in our lives. If we are struck with sickness or a job loss or any of these things, that's no reason to forfeit the promise. That's a greater opportunity to proclaim it, to proclaim the gospel. I truly believe that so much more is accomplished by real believers in the midst of trouble, not in the midst of ease. Pray that we would live it out to the best of our ability and the strength and power of the Holy Spirit regardless of what is going on in our lives and that we, like Spurgeon, would witness the greater works Jesus spoke about. I may never have the opportunity of baptizing 14,600 and some people, but I've baptized a few. Wow. That's the greater works. Our prayer is that we would not only see forward progress, but be part of the reason it occurs. To the glory of God in Christ Jesus. Amen.